Every graduation Sabbath, we invite a guest preacher uh, because I believe our preacher has something important to share with the graduates before we send you down from the university. And this morning, it is Dr. John McVeigh, who is president of Walla Walla University. But in an earlier life, he was actually a dean of the theological faculty here at Andrews University. And before that, he was a teacher and a chair and a preacher in Pacific Union College, our sister institution on the West Coast. A person who has contributed a great deal to Adventist higher education in the classroom and in the administration. Dr. McVeigh graduated from Southern. Some people think that that might be a moment of lapse in judgment, but he recovered quickly and uh, made his way to Andrews for a second degree, and his doctorate is from the University of Sheffield in England. Uh, Dr. McVeigh is married to Pam, and they have two children, and one of them, Marshall, is actually graduating from Andrews here, and that's what brought the whole family to be with us. We are very pleased, Dr. McVeigh, that you are with us and can be our guest preacher for this graduation service. We wish you God's blessing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow for you. Please accept a heartfelt word of congratulations from your family and friends who are gathered here and from your fellow students, professors, all of us. We're mighty proud of you. Uh, Let me speak uh, a, a word uh, about the gentleman behind me here, Dr. Niels Eric Andreasen. Uh, he has been, in case you don't know, the president of Andrews University for 22 years. For 18 of those years, I've had the privilege of either working under him. Or, or, or working alongside him as one of the presidents of a sister institution. And I can promise you that he and Demetra have been wonderful to all of us as colleagues, and we count them as treasured friends and mentors. And uh, we're not at all excited about him uh, moving along into another phase, and we're all plotting for ways to get him back somewhere. So, uh, Dr. Andreasen, thank you for all you've done for Seventh-day Adventist higher education. And those of us involved in this peerless enterprise means a great deal to us. You might just remember this little inane story. It happens about a year ago. It pops up on my screen only recently, and the story goes like this. Uh, A family, uh, a man and and a wife and a four-month-old infant are traveling in an automobile near the small town of Trinity, Texas. It is a Tuesday morning, 4.30 a.m. The man is driving. The woman is in the passenger seat. The four-month-old infant is loosely buckled into a car seat in the back seat. Uh, It so happens that the car is traveling at a very high rate of speed. 
They come to a fork in the road. The pavement is wet. The man, the driver, loses control of the car, clips a power pole, flips the car over a few times, and it lands smack dab up against the historic Trinity Chapel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, the infant, that four-month-old, is, is safely ensconced in the car seat, hanging by a bit of a thread in the back seat, but safe nonetheless. The man, the driver, gets tossed out of the car on the ground. Uh, the woman, interestingly enough, uh, survives without any major in, in injuries at all. She doesn't even get a scratch in spite of the fact that she is thrown through the glass of the vehicle and through a stained glass window in that historic church. And get this, she lands in a pew. Uh, I quote the ABC Eyewitness News story, quote, A Texas woman is lucky to be alive after her rolling vehicle threw her through a church window and into a pew early Tuesday morning. Now, in a moment, you might feel a little like that because I'm about to throw you into a church pew. Say, how can that be? I'm already in one. I'm, I'm right here. I'm about to throw you into a church pew, not at 4.30 a.m. on a Tuesday morning when no church service is taking place, but into a church pew while a most intriguing worship service is in progress. I'm about to draw you into a worship service that is occurring at the heart of the universe, a service convened around the throne of God. We're arriving just in time for the so-called special music. We're just in time to hear the choir sing the anthem. Allow me to prepare you for this jarring experience of landing in that church pew. Some years ago, I was on a seminary campus in Southern California waiting to speak to the mentor of my doctoral dissertation, and I had a half an hour or so on my hands, and so I went to the campus bookstore. That's where I'd go, Ron, to the campus bookstore, poke around the books. My doctoral mentor was teaching a class on early Christian worship, and I was poking around the books he had required for his class, and I pulled one off the shelf, opened it, leafed through my eyes hit a couple of pages that have been rather influential for me. I quote the book by Barry Leash, People in the Presence of God, Models and Directions for Worship. Leash writes, Although the book of Revelation has been widely studied as a book of prophecy, what it says about worship has been widely neglected. Yet at least 14 of the 22 chapters deal with worship. Worship is depicted as going on unceasingly before the throne. It is not an interlude between a sequence of dramatic scenes, as some have termed it. The reverse is true. Leach argues, in the deeper structure of the book, revelatory events, prophetic events, the stuff that happens here, down here on planet Earth, themselves are the interludes that break up the practice of continuous worship before the throne of God. Moreover, and just here this evangelical author really starts to sound like a Seventh-day Adventist, 
Moreover, worship in the last days becomes a strategic issue. The book unveils overall a cataclysmic conflict being waged across the expanse of heaven and earth as to who is to be worshipped, Satan the deceiver or the Lord God. It's quite a way of looking at the book of Revelation, isn't it? In the light of that quotation, that thinking from Leash, let's look together at the frame of our passage, Revelation chapter 15. Let's look at the beginning and the end, the introduction, the conclusion. Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Moving to the conclusion in verses 5 through 8. After this I looked... And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The beginning and end of Revelation chapter 15 describe the seven last plagues, God's final judgments on a rebellious globe bent on destroying his people. We watched the drama. We watched the doors of that heavenly tent of witness fly open. Seven linen-garbed, gold-sashed, angelic warriors emerge. Into their hands are placed golden bowls filled with God's judgments. As the last bowl touches the hands of the last angel warrior, thick Dark smoke fills the sanctuary, a signal that its mercy-granting, forgiveness-bequeathing business is done. In other words, the frame of our passage, its introduction and conclusion, is frightening, intriguing, and certainly apocalyptic. Not long ago... Pam and I had the privilege of traveling with a wonderful group of people as part of an alumni British Reformation tour, and of course, we were in England. And one afternoon, we found ourselves in the National Gallery, the National Art Gallery in London. Now, I have the privilege of sharing life with one of the most magnificent human beings on the planet. Her list of talents and gifts is almost endless. I can only think of one thing in which she's deficient, and that happens to be art appreciation. <laughs> and what happens that afternoon happens, has happened before in, I promise you, in numerous art galleries across this globe. We are standing on that particular afternoon in front of a masterpiece of a painting. It happens to be sunflowers by Vincent van Gogh. 
We're standing there in front of this masterpiece, and, and I think we're drinking it in, and we're reading the placard about the information, and we're drinking the masterpiece in, and suddenly she taps my shoulder. And I turn, and she says these words, Would you look at that frame? (laughs) Note to my beloved Pam, it is not the frame that is of first importance. Sotheby's would not be interested in the frame. It is not the frame that is most important. It is the masterpiece within it. Per Barry Leash, it is not the stuff that happens down here, including the seven last plagues, that is most important. It is the acts and deeds of worship that are occurring just now before the throne of God in heaven. That's the most important stuff. The context of Revelation 15, verses 1 through 8, it is not the frame of the seven last plagues that is most important. It is the masterpiece of worship that is at the heart of the passage. It is a significant, important passage, I believe, for Andrews University graduates in the year of our Lord, 2016, people who themselves have just won a great victory. The masterpiece, that masterpiece at the heart of our passage, consists of a description of the choir, a description of the choir directors, and the lyrics of the choir's song in verses 2 through 4. This is one of those so-called interludes in which we are drawn back into that worship service continually being conducted at the heart of the cosmos. We are elevated into the church service underway at God's throne. We are tossed into that cosmic church pew. Chapter 15, Revelation, verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Quite a choir. In that earlier lengthy transcript, of the heavenly worship service in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we find ourselves worshiping before the throne of God. John describes that throne in Revelation 4 verses 5 and 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now in Revelation chapter 15, in anticipation of the conflict and fury yet to come, the placid sea of glass is mingled with fire. The members of this massed choir are themselves veterans of great conflict, the victors in many battles. I'm guessing that this grand class of 2016 can identify with them. The narrator offers high praise for this choir. They have, quote, conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. They have vanquished the consortium of evil at the end of time, and they are multi-talented. Not only do they sing beautifully, they play skillfully, 
on their divinely issued harps, Stephen Zork's university singers and Claudio Gonzalez's university orchestra rolled into one, if you will. Verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Uh, Moses, you will remember, leads the children of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, and at a crucial point in the story, he becomes the conductor, the director of that great choir, and as he directs, he sings in full voice, Exodus 15, verse 1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. So how is it that this song in Revelation 15 is both the song of Moses and simultaneously the song of the Lamb? Well, I would remind you that Jesus is the new Moses. Moses himself had prophesied, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. The life of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, his intercession represent the new exodus. Jesus heads the new quest for a new promised land, and now he steps to the fore as the director of this choir and with full voice leads them in their hymn of praise. It is the song of Moses and the Lamb because they are the choir's directors conducting the chorus. And as we prepare to listen to the anthem, we need to poke around in the music library to search the archives, and when we do so, we find the original, the first song of Moses. Listening to it prepares us to hear this new composition, the Song of Moses and the Lamb. The original Song of Moses rings out at the close of a very dramatic day. The forces of the empire of Egypt, 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt, lead all Pharaoh's horsemen and all his army. They hunt down the long-enslaved and recently freed people from Israel. Defenseless, these Israelites are trapped between the devil and the deep blue sea, between the high-tech army of Egypt and an uncrossable body of water. In their minds, the only future they can envision is a graveyard, thousands upon thousands of graves in the desert. Poignantly, they interrogate Moses. Is it because there are not graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? But you know what happens in moments like that, don't you? God intervenes and comes to the rescue of his people. He makes a way through the sea, and then comes the song, the song of Moses, Exodus chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. 
The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The Song of Moses. Please note carefully. In what key do they sing? Do they boast of their own accomplishments? Do they boast of their own qualities, their own sinlessness perhaps, their degrees, their credentials? Do they sing their song in the key of self-congratulation? Oh, no, they don't, do they? This original song of Moses is in the key of praise. It is sung to the Lord, and it is all about the Lord. It is about His power, His deliverance, His mercy upon the unworthy. And could I say that when, by His grace, we make it to that grand baccalaureate on the other side, our song will have in it not a word of boastfulness, not a phoneme of pride. It will be an ode of praise to the one seated upon the throne and to the Lamb, don't you think? Any song of ours offered in the key of self-congratulation rings hollow. It dies on our lips. Any honest assessment of these precious years at Andrews University yields a different tune and revised lyrics, a song that is all about the mercies and goodness of God. It isn't about our accomplishments. It isn't even about our failings, many as those may be. It simply isn't about us. The original song of Moses is a hymn of profound praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And it is just such a song that these victorious ones now sing in their heaven-sighted liturgy recorded in Revelation 15. They are praised by the narrator. They have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. They are victors, winners in the culminating scenes of salvation history. They overcome the massed forces of evil at the end of time. High praise indeed. But listen to their song. There is in it not a syllable of self-congratulation. It is a song offered only in the key of praise and thanksgiving. Verses 3 and 4. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That's quite a hymn, isn't it? Powerful lyrics. I'm tempted to offer you a little literary analysis of the hymn based on the work of scholar Femi Adedigi. In Greek, the hymn consists of nine lines divided into three couplets of two lines each and a final set of three lines, each set displaying synonymous parallelism. It is poetry making use of logoedic verse rhythm exhibiting an irregular prose-like pattern of syllables. The rhyme has an A, B, A, B, C, A, B, A, D structure. 
And I congratulate both of you who understood and appreciated that little analysis. (laughs) The point is this. It's poetry. It's a real hymn, and it offers a powerful message to graduates in 2016. Is it possible that in this anthem we have access to the set of convictions that has equipped the members of this choir to navigate the worst of times? Is it possible that we have here the essential mindset for the Christian disciple who awaits Christ's return? Is it possible that we have exemplified the core convictions, the essential intellectual habits of true victors? Do these choir members prove to be great examples for talented people who themselves have just won a great victory? Andrews University graduates in the year of our Lord 2016. If so... What is in the heads and buried deep in the hearts of these victors? How should we behave in a moment of victory and conquest? Four essential habits. Number one, thankfulness for what God has done. Verse three, great and amazing are your deeds. Verse four, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Habit number one, thankfulness for what God has done. Number two, wonder at the unlimited nature of God's power and domain. Look at other titles that are offered in our passage for for God. O Lord God the Almighty, O King, Lord, O King of the nations, This choir, in this moment of supreme apocalyptic victory, wonders at the unlimited nature of God's power and domain. Could I gently remind you graduates that as the island of knowledge has grown considerably over these Andrews University years, the shoreline of ignorance has expanded geometrically? The truly educated person in this moment of advanced accomplishment, the truly educated person does not say, I know it all, but I know only a few things. In this moment, we do not celebrate our own knowledge, power, and domain, but the unlimited, untrammeled nature of God's knowledge, power, and domain. Habit number three, adoration for who God is. I, I wish I could, I could tell you how important it is, I believe it is, to simply set aside some time each day to adore and worship God. Just and true are your ways, verse three. For you alone are holy. The holiness, the righteousness, power of God. Adoring God for who he is. A powerful habit. Number four, a settled belief that God's side is the winning one. 
that whatever the outlook of the moment, God will be victorious. To cast one's lot with God is wise, for he will reign forever. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Can any smart, bright person avoid how logical and wondrous it is to worship the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? All nations will come and worship you. A settled belief that God's side is the winning one. If in this moment of great victory you find welling up within your heart the desire to harmonize with a lamb, I would encourage you to pray for and adopt these four core convictions, these four essential habits of heart and mind, thankfulness for what God has done, wonder at the unlimited nature of God's power and domain, adoration for who God is, and a settled belief that God's side is the winning one. You see, with respect to that last point, there is a plan afoot for you to be part of a far grander set of graduation exercises than even this one at Andrews University in 2016. In fact, God has a plan to include every one of you, and every one of you bears a sacred story into this pew and into the cosmic pew this morning. God has a plan to include you in the grandest graduating class of both time and eternity. Our daughter has taken many lessons. At that particular moment, she had uh, been practicing with a reasonable degree of dedication, and she's made good and measurable progress in her skills, and all the while, she has been saving, squirreling away checks she receives on her birthday, babysitting money, The amount of the required investment being considerable, two grandmothers have willingly contributed, and mom and dad dig deep. And finally, after a lot of waiting, a lot of saving, the appointed day arrives to make the wintry pilgrimage from the great metropolis of Berrien Center, Michigan, (laughs) to Ogden Avenue in Chicago, all four of us. Our little family make the trip, and it is a, it's a big deal. When we arrive, we find that the exterior of the building is, is understated at, at best, industrial, an urban back street. We go in kind of a service entrance, and we catch a freight elevator up a couple of floors. And when we travel up there, we find a gorgeous room with large windows looking out on the skyline of Chicago. But it isn't the scene outside that leaves us agape. It's the scene inside. For that room, a beautiful room, is filled with tight rows of large, beautiful instruments. For it is the Lion and Healy showroom in Chicago, full of harps, beautiful harps, scores of them, 
and one of them is to be ours or, or hers. A few days ago, I uh, pulled out the receipt that was generated for the purchase made that day. It's dated January 8, 2006, and I'm still impressed by the amount of money it takes to purchase a quality harp. After careful shopping that day, a lot of Q&A with the sales lady, we finally buy a used harp bearing serial number 51325. The logo in the background of that receipt is a stylized L, a curly ampersand, and an artistic H, accompanied by this slogan, Harp Makers to the World since 1889. Somewhere, somewhere in the heavenly courts, there is a showroom that opens onto the skyline of the New Jerusalem. Its paperwork bears the motto, Harp Makers to the Cosmos Since Time Immemorial. This showroom, too, is filled with harps. Handcrafted, hand-carved, gold-encrusted harps, myriads of them gleaming in that showroom. They are all tuned up and ready to play in the key of praise. They do not have serial numbers on them, but are artistically engraved into each harp is a name. And one of those names is yours.